God's word in 2 Kings 1 says, After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from the sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man who, who met us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah and was sitting on the top of the building of the hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O oh, man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties, but now let my life be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of the ales above the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he, did, so he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Let's pray. Lord, would you use your word? We know that your word will accomplish its desire, and so would you use it to edify, to bring those to you who do not know you, and to ultimately exalt your name. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, from an early age, we learn how to play hide and seek. It may begin with peekaboo, then it progresses to 
children standing in the middle of the room with their hands over their own eyes saying, I've hidden. And then you count to ten and they go, I'm here. And they haven't fully caught the game. And then it progresses. The children get better. They find better hiding spots. They get better at hunting for people. And they become better at the game. And yet, we learn not just how to play the game hide and seek, but we learn to search for what we want, what we think will bring us happiness. In one week, many children will dress up and go out trick-or-treating for candy, and then they'll come back and they'll eat till their stomachs ache. They have a good thing, but they search for it too much. They don't know how to tell themselves no more. And sometimes we search for good things, but in the wrong way. We may crave love, but we seek it from the wrong people, sometimes even destructive people. Yet sometimes we search for things that aren't good. We might search for gossip, forbidden items, or maybe inappropriate images on the internet. But this morning, we learn of a king whose foolish search turns into a deadly situation when he will not repent and seek the Lord. If you have a bulletin, we see two main sections in this passage. In the first eight verses, we see God's merciful judgment to those who are looking for help in all the wrong places. Then in verse 9 to the end, we see God's intolerant judgment on those who won't repent. But if you picked up the book of 2 Kings and tried to read it as a standalone book, you might be a little confused at first because the introduction seems a little odd. It mentions the death of Ahab, and then that Moab rebelled, and then it goes and talks about Ahaziah. There doesn't seem to be any connection between these ideas. And yet, the beginning is not odd because it wasn't originally written as a beginning. Originally, First and Second Kings was one book, and it wasn't until 200 BC in Greek translations that they started to be split apart into two books. And so, verse 1 of Chapter 1 was really right after verse 53 of chapter 22, in which it told us of the sin of Ahaziah. But if you flip back one page or look across your page at the end of 1 Kings 22, we see a little bit more that makes all of this tie together. In 1 Kings 22 verse 43, we read of Jehoshaphat, and it tells us in verse 43 and on, that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then if you look down at verse 47, we're told there was no king in Edom. A deputy was king. Now what's going on here is that the author is cluing us into the fact that there's no king in Edom because Jehoshaphat rules over Edom. Deuteronomy 4 was clear that God promised Israel if they would obey the Lord then they would rule over the land. But if they rebelled against the Lord, then they would lose the land. And so since Jehoshaphat was following the Lord and the nation of Judah in the south, then they're ruling over Edom, what's around their territory. But then as the story goes on, we read of Athaliah's sin, of Ahab dying, and what do we expect? We'll expect Deuteronomy 4 to come to completion, and it does, and we see Moab rebels. Their sin in the nation of Israel has led to them losing the land. And in fact, though Judah rules over Edom, if you keep reading, and we will keep reading in 2 Kings, in chapter 8 we'll find that when a king of Judah begins to turn from the Lord and turn to Baal, at that point, 2 Kings 8.20, Edom rebels. 
Now, we've mentioned as we've gone through kings, we've got to be careful because Israel was under a distinct national covenant with God under the Mosaic law. And so we can't say today, anytime you lose something or gain something, it's due to personal sin. But we do need to recognize that going on in the nation of Israel. But then the story does take this turn where Ahaziah, the, king, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, falls from his palace. And he wants to know what we all want to know when we're sick. Am I going to get better? What's going on? Is there something that is going to be long-lasting for life? Am I going to die? Is there a cure? And to get answers, Ahaziah seeks Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron. And the problem is not that Ahaziah wants to know the answer to these questions. His questions are fine. It's rather where he seeks them from. If you've read C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, one of his books is called Prince Caspian. And in it, the inhabitants of Narnia, the country there, have been overthrown and they're under a tyrant named Miraz. Well, the loyal Prince Caspian has a small band of loyal Narnians fighting with him. And they have a trumpet that when they blow this trumpet, help will come. They don't know where. Maybe it'll come from the Christ figure lion, Aslan. Maybe it'll come from the former kings and queens or maybe someone or something else. And yet they blow the horn and nothing comes immediately. And yet not everyone believes the horn. One being specifically named Nicobrick says, You would have us wait till the sky falls and we can all catch larks. I tell you, we can't wait for help. Food is running short. We lose more than we can afford at every encounter. Our followers are slipping away. Those loyal to Narnia say, no, no, help is going to come. And yet, Nickerbrick doesn't have much faith in their means, so he brings in two suspicious-looking characters. And after a lot of smooth talking, he finally reveals that he has brought back the wicked white witch and a werewolf. When the Narnians respond with shark Shocked rage, Nicobrick replies, Sit down again. Don't take fright at the name as if you're children. We want power, and a power that will be on our side. You know, Nicobrick wanted something good. He wanted to win the war. He wanted power, and yet he sought it through evil. And same thing here. Ahaziah wants a good thing. There's nothing wrong with your sick wanting to know, Am I going to get better? But where do you seek help? Where do you turn? And so the story transitions. Because just as Ahaziah sends messengers, the Lord sends a messenger, the angel of the Lord, to Elijah. And he is to go speak to Ahaziah's messengers. And he's supposed to go ask them, is it because there's no God in Israel that you have to go to Baal-zebub to ask of this? You know, Ahaziah is seeking help in another country from a false god in this angered Yahweh, it angered God. And so he responds this, with this searching question, whether there is no God in Israel. In essence, he's saying, how dare you go off running to seek help from someone besides me? You imagine it's mealtime, and you have made a wonderful meal for your kids, and neighbors start coming to your house going, why are your kids coming and knocking on our door for dinner? And they keep doing this day in and day in every meal. And you finally, why are y'all going to the neighbors? And yet that illustration falls a little short because the neighbors actually, to make the illustration complete, 
are known to not have much food, and they're known to have really bad food. And yet, though you've made a wonderful meal for your children, they keep going to what will never satisfy and will never be good for them. That is what Ahaziah is doing. He's seeking out what will never bring him good. And this angers the Lord. And yet, Elijah not only needs to ask them this, but he also needs to tell them, Ahaziah will surely not get up from the bed in which he lies. Now, it's interesting, this story is very condensed. What did these messengers think? I'm sure they were scared to go back to Ahaziah and tell him this, but something about Elijah must have convinced him they must go back. And so they go much quicker than Ahaziah would expect they could. And so he asked him, what's going on? Why are you all back? And they recount exactly what Elijah told them. Asking, well, is there no God in Israel that you have to go to Baal-zebub? And then that you're going to surely die. And then Ahaziah asked, well, what was this guy like? And they tell him, well, he had a garment of hair and a leather belt. And I don't know what version you have of the Bible, but if you have a New King James or a King James version, you may have noticed that it doesn't say he has a garment of hair, but that he is a hairy man. Or the NIV has a footnote that notes it. So whether he's a hairy man or a belt of hair, it's interesting because the word is Baal Sha'ar. Ahaziah wants to heal, hear from Baal Zabub, the god of Ekron, and yet all he hears from is Baal Ja'ar, the lord of the hair. And he gets a message he does not want. So these first eight verses are really leading us to recognize three important implications or applications. And the first one is that we will lead our children by the lifestyle we lead. Flip back again to the end of 1 Kings, and let's read the last three verses. 1 Kings 22, beginning in verse 51, it says, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Like father, like son. What habits, attitudes, and actions are you passing on to your children? What does your free time show that you are seeking after? Where do you find comfort, joy, and rest when life is hard? Are you trail-breaking a path of righteousness or sin? And in fact, if not checked, often our children will go even further than we do. You may have noticed that not only mentioned Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the mother and father of Ahaziah, it also mentioned blanked out Jeroboam, the man who had originally led Israel from Judah. And yet, interestingly, though Jehor, Jeroboam led Israel away and led them to false gods, when his son turned sick in 1 Kings 14, he still sought the Lord. Yet now, generations later, they have digressed where Ahaziah doesn't have the Lord in his mind at all. The second thing we see from this section is the folly 
of sin. And we see it really in two unique ways. First, there's the specific folly of Athaliah. Ahaziah, sorry, all these names mix you up sometimes. Because he saw Yahweh's omnipotence and Baal's impotence time and again during his father's reign. You may remember 1 Kings 18, the famous battle on Mount Carmel. But why was there a battle in the first place? Well, because for three and a half years there had been a drought in Israel. And yet what was Baal supposed to be the god of? Of fertility and the clouds. And yet the one thing Israel hadn't had for three and a half years was rain. The one thing Baal was supposed to be lord over, he couldn't provide. And then the exact encounter where he should be able to win, able to send lightning from heaven, well, his prophets yell, they scream, they cut themselves, and his altar just sat there. Elijah prayed, and Yahweh sent down fire that consumed not only the sacrifice, but the altar on it. And yet that's not all. First Kings 19, sorry, verse Kings 20, we then see Yahweh twice lead Israel to defeat the larger and superior Syrian army. Yahweh thus shows, I don't just control the weather, I control armies. On top of that, First Kings 21 was when Ahab killed Naboth, and it was supposed to be a secret, and yet God knows even the secret deeds and brought judgment. Then the cherry on top was First Kings 22, when Yahweh foretold of Ahab's death in battle. And so the God who controls the weather, the outcomes of battle, knows even our secret deeds and can determine, determine the day of your death. Isn't that the one to seek and serve? Wouldn't it be foolish to go to the very God who did no power over all those things? Ahaziah knew all of that history. And yet, instead of sending messengers to Elijah, he sent messengers to Baal, Zebul of Ekron. And yet this is folly, not just to Ahaziah's personal history, but also the longer Israelite history. Many of you may know the story in 1 Samuel 4 where Israel is about to go to battle with the Philistines and they think we're going to lose, so what do we need? Oh, if we take the Ark of the Covenant, we'll win. We can get God on our side. They don't realize God's only on their side when they're serving the Lord. They can't use God as a genie whenever they want. And so they lose the Ark of the Covenant in battle. And then the Philistines take the Ark. And yet though they've captured the Ark of the Lord, they didn't capture the Lord. Thus when they take the Ark and they put it in the temple of their God, the next morning they go and find their God with its face on the floor in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So the Philistines pick the Ark back up. And you know what? The next morning they go back and their God has fallen again in front of the ark of the Lord and its hands are chopped off and its head removed. So then they send the ark of the covenant to another town. But that city was inflicted with disease and panic. And then 1 Samuel 5.10 says, So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there is a deathly panic throughout the whole city. And then it says, The hand of God was heavy there. Except where is there? Ekron. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. 
Now Ahaziah knows that Ekron is the very place where God showed he rules over all other gods. No other god can keep you safe from disease. And yet where does he send for help? Baal's above the god of Ekron. It's complete folly and foolishness. It would be like the leading investors of Wall Street going to interview bankrupt homeless people trying to get some financial advice. Yet the third implication of this passage is the mercy of God. God's mercy is seen in that God does not immediately give Ahaziah what he deserves. You know, how do we respond when someone refuses our help? I'm done. I'm finished. You don't want my help? Well, fine. Go do it by yourself. Go ahead and fail. Don't come back to me. God has warned us the wages of sin is death. And Ahaz seeking a false god is definitely sin. Yet God gives Ahaziah a warning of coming judgment rather than immediate judgment. God allows a serious event to make him reflect. Because there is more to the story of his father Ahab. Because God had also told Ahab that he was going to die. And you may remember 1 Kings 21 verses 27 through 29. Turn there quickly just back to chapters 1 Kings 21, 27 through 29. Because after God promised judgment, <coughs> we read, And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. In the same way, if Ahaziah had humbled himself, the Lord would have relented of the disaster and spared him. Yes, justice is going to come one day to Ahab's house, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We often think of the suffering that we endure in life as only punishment. And yet sometimes the suffering we go through is God's mercy that causes us to realize what really matters in life. You may be familiar with another work of C.S. Lewis, his novel, The Screwtape Letters. And in it, there's an older demon, Screwtape, who's writing letters to a younger demon, his nephew, Wormwood, trying to encourage, edify, and exhort him in leading people away from God and leading them ultimately to the devil. In one letter, Wormwood discourages Screwtape, his mentor, mentee, from his excitement over war. Now you might think that's exactly what the demons want because in a war there's death and destruction, what the devil desires. Yet Screwtape writes, Of course a war is entertaining. The immediate fear and suffering of the humans is a legitimate and pleasing refreshment for a myriads of toiling workers. But what permanent good does it do to us unless we make use of it for bringing, our, bringing souls to our Father below? How much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes, amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as we have trained them, promising life to the dying, encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence, and even, if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestion of a priest, let it should betray to the sick man his true condition, 
And how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death, which war reinforces. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. In wartime, not even a human can believe that he's going to live forever. So do you see God's kindness, his mercy, even in the sometimes severe suffering we endure? Do you see his opening our eyes to rip our transfixed gaze off the creation and onto the creator? Dale Davis writes, God's interruption of Ahaziah's mission to Beelzebub is a last opportunity. Yahweh did not allow Ahaziah's idolatry to proceed in peace, but invaded his space and rubbed his face in the first commandment again. Again, we see our uncomfortable God. Yahweh is furious, not tolerant, holy, not reassuring, loving, not nice. But there is love in his fury. He won't let you walk the path to idolatry easily. His mercy litters the way with roadblocks. You know, we want to go flying down the highway to hell. But God throws speed bumps, potholes, and roadblocks in the way. He does this so we'll have to slow down and go, Wow, that sign keeps saying I'm getting closer to hell. Maybe I should turn around. And yet if there were no pothole or roadblocker, Something slowing us down, we would just keep flying down that highway. So thank God for the roadblocks of life that he intends for us to slow down and change direction. Yet if we won't change directions, God will eventually act in judgment. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 18, intolerant judgment on those who won't repent. Verse 9 Ahaziah then sends a captain with his 50 men to bring Elijah down to him. Now we're going to make all kind of foolish statements. And if you read many commentaries, you'll read many foolish statements about how harsh and wrong Elijah's response will be. If we don't think about what's going on. I mean, it's really not that complicated. What did Ahaziah do to hear from Baal or Baal? He sent messengers. What does he do and what does he send to Elijah? A captain with 50 armed men. Now you don't send a captain with a band of men with weapons if you're just wanting a nice fireside chat. You send armed men, 50 of them, to arrest one when you want that person arrested and destroyed. Ahaziah is basically saying, I want nothing to do with your word, God. I am going to imprison it and get rid of it. You know, Ahaziah has the same wrong thoughts about Elijah that his father did. Elijah, you're ruining my life. And yet, Elijah's not ruining his life. He's trying to save his life by calling him to repent. And so, these 50 men come. You see, Ahaziah is not doing what he should in humbling himself. Rather, he sends the men to say what? Man of God, come down. He's still wanting to call the shots. Now, interesting, Elijah doesn't get into a dispute over international rights to a trial. He doesn't go into a discussion of the folly of Ahaziah's decision. He doesn't even have debates over the merits of what it would do even to talk to Ahaziah. He just replies, if I'm a man of God, 
then may fire come down from heaven to consume you. He's essentially saying to this one and the next one, you keep using this word God. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Or to say it differently, do you know what the word God means? You are a creature of dust, and you are wanting to come and command the creator of all things? Who do you think you are that you have control over him than him having control over you? Why do you think you get to say who comes down? What makes you think that God's prophet isn't the one who gets to order things, but you get to order things? And so fire does come down. What God wants to come down, not what Ahaziah wants to come down. Now, if you're Ahaziah, you know of that spiritual battle that was on Mount Carmel, in which through Elijah God sent fire down. Yet even though now fire consumes 50 men and their leader, Ahaziah still does not repent. Rather, he sends another captain with 50 more men. This isn't in my notes, but it's just odd to me that in this story, people rebuke Elijah and that Ahaziah. He knows what's going to happen. But back to my notes, could there be any clear indication of the hardness of Ahaziah's heart? I mean, this is a Pharaoh-like hardness. He won't budge at all, even in the face of the destruction of his own life, in the destruction of his kingdom, of his own men. He is hell-bent to do what he wants. So the captain of the second group comes down, and you may have noticed he even was harsher. He tells Elijah to come down quickly. Elijah reiterates again, look, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down and fire consumes them. And yet, how callous and selfish is Ahaziah that he then will send another 50 men. And his men's lives only matter to him if they're doing what he wants. You know, it's cruel and it's foolish. What does he think is going to happen a third time? You've probably heard the common definition, not a di dictionary definition, but common definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Well, Ahaziah, how many groups of 50 men do you need to send before you have to realize you can't order God or his prophet to come down? You need to humble yourself. Well, Ahaziah doesn't get it, but the third captain does. He is aware that two sets of 50 men have come back, and there's two big black marks on the hill, and he doesn't want to be the third one. So he does what exactly what he should do. He comes and he goes down. He bows down and he says, have mercy on us. Spare my life. Spare the life of these men. And this third captain is showing us how Ahaziah and we should respond to God. We should humble ourselves knowing he is the creator. He is the judge. We deserve his judgment, so we don't come to him telling him what to do. We humble ourselves before him and ask what he wants us to do. And don't be confused. This is not just the God of the Old Testament, though that's a really bad way to think since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the God of all time. That's why when we read earlier from Hebrews twelve twenty-five, it says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
For if they did not escape, talking about the Old Testament, when they had refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape, people of the New Testament, if we reject him who warns from heaven. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The exact same thing that happened with Elijah, God promises will happen. Now it's interesting, you may think, well wait, Luke 9 53 through 54, Jesus' disciples want to call down fire, and Jesus tells them, no, don't call down fire. But it wasn't that Jesus was telling them no for all time. He was saying no, not yet. That's why he himself said later, Luke 12, 49 and 51, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And what will that division be over? It will be over those who have humbled themselves, who have submitted themselves to God's word, and those who say, I'm calling the shots. I'm going to run my life the way I won't. Those who humble themselves will receive mercy, forgiveness. Those who in their proud state, like Ahaziah, will be humbled. Like Ahaziah, God offers us a chance to repent to receive his mercy and forgiveness. But if we will not, then we will receive the fire of judgment. And Jesus was clear on this. Matthew seven nineteen. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew thirteen forty. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Matthew eighteen eight. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Then he will say to those on his left, Matthew twenty-five forty-one, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now some will rightly question, well, wait, wait. That seems like you're trying to motivate, motivate people by fear. Shouldn't we want to do things out of love? Well, yes, fear is wrong if out of proportion. But I'm sure the two first fearless captains are now thinking, I wish I'd had a little more fear before Elijah. We'll all come before God, and we should rightly fear that day. Imagine a different illustration for a second. Imagine your boss has been talking to everyone saying, hey, in a couple weeks, the commander-in-chief is going to come, and I need everyone to have everything perfect that day. And then he specifically singles one person out and says, look, when the commander comes, you are essential to that day. We need you to be working diligently, efficiently, quickly, and without you, things will not go well. Well, the day comes, everyone knows the commander-in-chief is coming, and the guy who's so essential just doesn't show up to work. Turns off his phone, goes to the pool, and enjoys a relaxing day. And then the next day, he comes into work and starts cracking jokes and kind of skips into the boss's office. What would everyone think? He is a fool. Doesn't he realize how angry the boss is going to be after he clearly communicated what he wanted? And then he just, I don't care. Well, if we understand that with human bosses, why would we think the God of the universe would be any less angry 
when he's clearly communicated what he wanted, and we just go, eh, I don't care. I'm just going to live my life the way I want. His judgment is just. Like Ahaziah, we seek out anything but God to make it through life. And God is rightly angered. Now notice that God does not say, well, I mean, at least Ahaziah was looking to a God as he understands me. Your age finds God's intolerance of other gods as harmful, archaic, even evil. But let's just use one other illustration. Imagine if it were your anniversary and your husband decided to go out to dinner and then spend the night with someone who was not your spouse. Would you be fine if they said, well, what's the problem? There's many ways to express love. Was with a woman. Does it really matter what her name is, who she is, what we did? I mean, there's many paths to expressing love for women. Now, the illustration is really ridiculous. And you're probably wondering, no one would do that. And yet, we do that to God and go, well, who cares? It means God doesn't matter if I call him Baal or Allah or Jesus. Yes. Just like it would matter to you if your husband said, oh, just any name, any woman, doesn't matter. I'm just expressing love. And God rightfully cares and is intolerant when we love any other, seek after any other God but Him. And yet, the message is not just that God will judge you so you better turn. It's also that when we seek out other things, what does God do? Well, Luke 19.10 tells us, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Yes, God showed mercy to Ahaziah by sending Elijah, and God showed mercy to us by sending His Son, sending to seek us out, to seek us before it's too late. Thus God calls all of us who are seeking for meaning, purpose, hope, love, control, and all that we need in this life in other ways. And he says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which does not satisfy? And your labor for which does not fill you? Do listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And thus he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You know, our story, Second Kings 1, ends with seeing that there will be a time when it is too late. Ahaziah did not repent, and then he died, just as God's word declared. You know, it didn't matter one bit whether Ahaziah believed it or not. God's word rules and will come true whether we're shaking our fists at it the whole time or whether we bow our knees. And so the story is showing us the folly of seeking after anything but God for help. And yet the foundation of life is seeking Him. So what are you looking to for help? What or whom are you seeking Will what you're seeking truly give you help? Let's pray. Oh Lord, in this world we have many tribulations. We have many trials and we need help. 
and we are prone to go to whatever will help us. May we see that everything but you is a false hope. May we seek you and know that when we seek you, we will be found by you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.